it is, it is hard uh, as we come together this morning knowing what has happened over the weekend in Paris, uh, having that lie heavy on our hearts um, to, um, frankly, to go ahead with what was intended. Uh, that's especially hard for me personally because I had a really good introduction for the sermon. Like, it was perfect. And now I feel like, you know, a bunch of jerks go shoot up a bunch of people and blow some stuff up in Paris, and that makes my job harder. Because really, it's all about me. But I, I think the passage, actually, that we're looking at in Hosea does speak, if anything in Hosea does, it speaks to what has been going on in the world in the last few days and how we think about it as God's people and how we think about the kind of promises that God makes and that God doesn't make and the things that we should and shouldn't expect from other actors on the world stage. On Wednesday morning, I found myself on Gores Mill Road. To be more precise, I found myself several feet off of Gores Mill Road. I was driving my kids to school to pick up the bus at uh, Franklin Elementary, and there was a tree that had fallen across Gores Mill Road that prevented anybody from going by. And I noticed that to the side of this tree, this section of road, was a large expanse of somebody's lawn, and I knew from past experience that this was not like somebody's lawn that they would play croquet on and have tea parties on. This was something that would get mown infrequently. For those of you not familiar with Gores Mill Road, when you, when you drive through it, you sort of hear the theme from Deliverance. Uh, it, it really, you, you do feel like you've entered into another world. It's one lane. It's treacherous for whatever reason. My children prefer that we take that instead of a, a safer route in the morning. Um, and I saw on this lawn not only space which there was not on the road because, as I mentioned, a tree had fallen across it, I saw some tire tracks. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. Yeah. In a Prius. (laughs) Some things seem like a good idea at the time. And Jose is writing to a people who were doing exactly the kinds of things that seemed like a good idea to them at the time. We're picking up at the end of chapter 11. Hosea says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. This is God speaking through Hosea. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. And Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Remember, Ephraim is the northern kingdom. That's where Hosea is. That's the people he's primarily speaking to. But he also has things to say to Judah, to the southern kingdom. Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day. That multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. Abraham Joshua Heschel, whom we've been consulting throughout this passage, 
comments on this. He says, the political game of hiring allies among the nations was both perilous and blasphemous, with Israel lying between the mighty Assyrian Empire and an ambitious Egypt. Far from being a cure for Israel's weakness, taking advantage of the shifting political constellation could have had only the opposite effect. This political game is both perilous and blasphemous. Now, perilous makes sense, right? You're a small nation. You've got two superpowers, one ascendant to your south in Egypt, one to the north in Assyria, well-established, trying to play one against the other. It's a dangerous game. And there's nothing in particular that is wrong about establishing trade in olive oil to Egypt. God is not concerned about diet here. The point is, Israel is making deals. Israel is not only making deals, Israel is trying to make deals with one party behind the other's back, not keeping in mind the degree to which superpowers tend to have extensive intelligence networks. This ended up blowing up in their face. So it was perilous, and that makes sense. But why was it blasphemous? Well, the reason it's blasphemous is that we're told in Torah and then on that God had a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. And God made some unique promises to that people to provide for it, to take care of it to establish it secure, to make it peaceful, literally to fight for it. We read back in in Exodus, in chapter 23, God says through Moses, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. Remember, this is God talking to a people who have just been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, out of slavery to the nation's are the world's leading superpower of the time. They have been rescued out of slavery. And not only have they been rescued out of slavery, God's going to bring them into a land where they can be secure, where they can be at peace, where they can be prosperous, where they can experience justice and and health. And God says, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So pay attention to him, listen to what he says, Don't rebel against him. He won't forgive your rebellion because my name is in him. But if you listen carefully to what he says and if you do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. What a comfort that would be. Imagine you're a general or a diplomat and God has promised you that he will be an enemy to your enemies. I'll be an enemy to your enemies. I'll oppose anyone who opposes you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. So don't bow before their gods. Don't worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship Yahweh your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I'll take away sickness from among you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land. I'll give you a full lifespan. 
I'll send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I'll make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I'll send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. And I won't drive them out in a single year, as the land would become desolate and wild animals would be too numerous for you. But little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you've increased enough to take possession of the land. I'll establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river. I'll hand you over to the people who live in the land, and you'll drive them out before you. Don't make a covenant with them or their gods. Don't let them live in your land, or they'll cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Who's doing the fighting here? God, yeah, right, God. You could even answer Jesus and that would be okay too. God is the one who's doing the fighting. Who's the one who's guaranteeing the victory? God. Who's establishing the timeline for this, by the way? God. Who's establishing strategy for this? God. So God is the chief strategy officer of this whole operation. But he's the one who's guaranteeing success. To whom is he guaranteeing this success? To Israel, to his people. This people he redeemed. This people he saved. We look on in Numbers. We get a little picture of how this worked at the end of chapter 10. So they set out from the mountain of Yahweh and traveled for three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, that's, you saw the movie, went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of Yahweh was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Yahweh, to the countless thousands of Israel. The ark, understood to be the place of God's presence, is what is going before them. This is not conventional military strategy to take a box that's got gold on it and is being carried by a couple priests with, with poles. But this was not a conventional military exercise. This was God's unique people following God's unique program under his unique protection. And so again, this gets recapitulated here in Deuteronomy in chapter 7. When Yahweh your God, this is again, God speaking through Moses to the people. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Because if you do that, then their daughters will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And Yahweh's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. You're a people set apart You are a people not like the other people, but you have been set apart as a distinct people that is holy 
to Yahweh alone. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And before that makes you feel too comfortable or too good about yourselves, let me remind you, Yahweh did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because he loved you. And he kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face with destruction. He won't be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. So take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. And skipping ahead, you you may say to yourselves, selves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But don't be afraid of them. Remember what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the, the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the Mighty hand and outstretched arm with which Yahweh your God brought you out. Yahweh your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, Yahweh your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. So don't be terrified by them. For Yahweh your God who is among you, right? Remember this just from last week? Yahweh your God, the Holy One in your midst, he's a great an awesome God. Yahweh, your God, will drive out these nations before you little by little. You won't be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you, but Yahweh, your God, will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they're destroyed. He'll give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up to you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Don't covet the silver and gold on them. Don't take it for yourselves, because if you do, you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to Yahweh your God. Don't bring a detestable thing, i.e. one of these idols, into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction." And then in chapter 20, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, don't be afraid of them because Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, will be with you. In fact, when you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. This is the promise. This is the promise that God has for his people. And so, after Torah, when Joshua 
Moses' successor, goes into the land when he finally leads the people across the Jordan to enter the land. This is what happens in chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the ark, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, then you are to move out from your positions and follow it. And you'll know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it because that thing is radioactive. Stuff happens. Be careful. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow Yahweh will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. They took it up, went ahead of them. Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in, all the, in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you even as I was with Moses. So tell the priests who carry the ark when you reach the edge of Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here, listen to the words of Yahweh your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. So choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark went ahead of them. Now, Jordan's at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. And so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, where have we seen this kind of thing before? The Red Sea, Exodus, right? God rescuing his people out of the land in which they were enslaved. Now we see this as the people are about to enter the land that he has promised to them. And I think the point of the exercise is for God to demonstrate just who is in charge here, just who has the power here, just who is responsible for establishing victory. And when we keep in mind that this is the history of God's dealing with his people, This is what God has done for his people. These stories would not have been alien to Hosea's audience. When this people who has been rescued out of slavery to the world's leading superpower, this people who has no business inhabiting anything, let alone this wonderful land that God has given them, when they have had all these benefits 
of this God who loves them, who's in covenant relationship with them, who provides for them, who cares for them. When they are to the point where they are trying to cut deals with Assyria and with Egypt, when they're making favorable trade arrangements in hopes of preserving some semblance of independence. It's pretty shameful. And we see throughout Hosea that God is not impressed by the people freelancing diplomatically. Chapter 5, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. What great king is Ephraim supposed to be turning to for help? God, not the king of Assyria. He's not able to cure you. He's not able to heal your sores. So I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I'll tear them in pieces and go away. I'll carry them off with no one to rescue them. And then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt. And they'll seek my face and their misery. They will earnestly seek me. Chapter 7, he says, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. Burned on one side and raw on the other. Not good for anything. Foreigners sap his his strength, but he doesn't realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he doesn't notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, even though the the results of what he's doing are are obvious, he doesn't return to Yahweh as God or search for him, Ephraim's like a, a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria, You know, when they go, I will throw my net over them. I'll pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I'll catch them. Woe to them because they've strayed from me. Destruction to them because they've rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They don't cry out to me from their hearts. They wail upon their beds. They don't cry out to me. They just cry. Pathetic. They gather together for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I train them. I strengthen them, but they plot evil against me. They don't turn to the Most High. They're like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. In chapter 8, as Joe taught us, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It won't produce any flower. And even if it were to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. You make these deals with these countries, and they take more and more and more. Israel swallowed up, and now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. Remember, the idea was that God's people would live so well. Israel would be so strong and so prosperous and so healthy that they would be a living billboard for the God of the universe, that the people who passed by and the people who traded with them and the people who tried to attack them and failed would say, what is it with these people? Who is their God who is so great and so powerful, who takes such good care of his people, 
They should have the greatest reputation among the nations, but instead, she's among the nations like a worthless thing, for they've gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. This is not a compliment. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Even though they've sold themselves among the nations, I will gather them together now. They'll begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Chapter 10, the people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Here you have the the syncretism, idolatry, the, the false worship tied up with the people casting about for help anywhere they think they can find it. Its people will mourn over it, and so will their idolatrous idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it's taken from them into exile. So they're wanting to leave the land and chase after this false idol into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its wooden idols. And as we looked at last week, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son out of Egypt, out of this great superpower of the time, out of this nation that is also a great power when Hosea is writing, God saved his people from this nation way, way more powerful than they. But the more I called to Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed the Baals. They burned incense to images. So will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them? Have they not put themselves in the position where they will go back into enslavement? Will not this nation that cherishes its independence, that thinks itself able to operate on the world stage and to move other nations around like chess pieces, will they not find themselves dominated by one of these nations stronger and Let's face it, smarter than they are. Much like somebody who decides to go off-roading in a Prius, Israel found itself stuck in the mud. Now we have to remember in all of this, when we read this in Hosea, when we read about these promises that are made in Torah, we read about the story in Joshua. This, these are specific promises that God makes to a specific people. When he is criticizing them here in Hosea for their faithlessness, he is criticizing a specific people who had a specific relationship with him. Hosea presents actually a number of these opportunities to be careful about the way we read. Even the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a, chi- a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We read in Matthew's gospel that when Jesus' family escaped to Egypt and then came back once it was safe, this fulfilled this prophecy. I think Hosea was as surprised as anybody else to find out this prophecy needed to be fulfilled. God sounded like God was just kind of describing this story of him and his people, but there's something that needed to be fulfilled. Yet there are other places where God makes specific commands to particular people. The fact that God told Hosea to take back his wife who had been adulterous does not mean that every time an adulterous spouse is sinned against that that spouse has to take back 
the person who committed adultery. In a sense, it's, it's the extraordinary nature of this that makes it all the more remarkable that God would tell Hosea, who has been ashamed, to increase that by bringing his, his wife back, even though she clearly has demonstrated that she is not the character of the sort of person you'd expect a prophet to be married to. And so here, when we read about God promising that he's going to fight for Israel, promising he's going to establish them in their land, and then criticizing them because they have, really more than criticizing, he mocks them because they have sold themselves out on the international stage. He's speaking to a particular people at a particular time with which he had a particular and unique relationship. Uh, if, If I can note we sang in one of our hymns this morning, Win This Nation Back. Uh, for one, America is not Israel, and America never was one to God. So it's not like America could be one back to God. Read the history. This is not a Christian nation. It certainly is not a nation in unique relationship with God the way Israel was, as much as Some of the pilgrims thought that that's what was going on. So what this prophecy does not mean is that no nation should involve itself in treaties, no nation should make trade deals, and it doesn't say that nations should not involve themselves in diplomacy. What this passage is saying is that this particular nation, the one that God redeemed the one that God saved, the one that God established has been unfaithful to its unique relationship with God and that it is going to experience the logical consequences of that infidelity. Yahweh used a prophet here at the end of chapter 12. Yahweh used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt By a prophet, he cared for him, but Ephraim has bitterly provoked him to anger. Yahweh will leave upon him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. This is strong language. Just like the language about adultery is strong language. God is saying when you try to do things your own way rather than trusting in me. You're having contempt for me, Israel. It's not just a different diplomatic paradigm. You are demonstrating your contempt for me. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt. Chapter 13. You should know no God but me, no Savior except me. And you're destroyed because you're against me. I'm your helper. I'm the one who takes care of you, and yet you've gone against me, and that means your destruction. Where's your king that he may save you? Who's going to save you? Where are the rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king, give me princes? This is not the end of the story. 
know I've been kind of putting off the story of reconciliation, which we are going to get to next next week. Obviously, I got out of the mud going through the AAA and a, and a tow truck driver who graciously did not inform AAA that I had deliberately driven off the road, which would actually mean that they wouldn't have towed me out. But yeah, Israel did a lot of things that seemed like a good idea at the time, and as a result, they found themselves stuck axle deep in the mud. No way to go forward, no way to go back, no way to go anywhere. Heschel says, and this is the reminder, and this is the hope, and this is what we'll talk about next week. Sin is not a cul-de-sac, nor is guilt a final trap. Sin may be washed away by repentance and return, and beyond guilt is the dawn of forgiveness. The door is never locked. Threat of doom is not the last word. Ultimately, there is only one will by which history is shaped, the will of God. And there's only one factor upon which the shape of history depends, the moral conduct of the nations. The history of mankind moves between these two poles. Let's pray. Lord, it is comforting to us to know that there is only will, one will by which history is shaped, your will. But it is sobering to know that the factor upon which you shape that is the moral conduct of the nations. Lord, we know that our nation does not have the same unique relationship with you that the people of Israel did. And we know that the specific promises that you made to them are not promises we can claim for our country as much as we love it. But we also know, you make it clear in your word that you hold the nations to account for whether or not they pursue justice, whether they behave honorably in their dealings with others, whether they look after those who cannot look after themselves. Pray that we would be people in our own nation, in our own time, who work toward making our nation one that pursues justice and that seeks after the safety and the rights of those who cannot establish those themselves. We pray that throughout this we would people who trust you and trust you alone. We pray this in Christ's name.